Our reading today is from Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship... I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, what therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place so that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now... He commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, good morning, Crosspoint. It's good to be here with you this morning. I'll be honest, my heart is like, has these two opposing emotions to it. In one side, I am uh, glad to be here. Uh, it's good to see so many familiar faces. It's good to see uh, 
just this great gospel presence in the heart of the city of Orlando. And yet, as glad as I am, there's also a sadness in my heart because of um, just the unexpected death of Ryan's father, Dale. Uh, it kind of came as a shock to all of us. And um, I was flying back from Philadelphia, and uh, when I landed about 11 o'clock at night, I realized I had had a missed call from Ryan. And by the time I got home, my wife was like, hey, did you see on Facebook that uh, Ryan's dad was in the hospital? And uh, so the next morning, I texted him and uh, went and visited a, visited Dale in the hospital and Ryan. And um, as every good pastor uh, should say, um, the I told Ryan, man, you need to take the Sunday off. You need somebody else to preach for you. You need to stay focused on your family and with your mom and your brother and your sister. And um, and he goes, okay, why don't you do it, right? right? And so I'm thinking, that was a great idea until he said, you do it. And because of previous commitments, um, I didn't really have time to prepare a sermon until this morning when we got in the car to drive the two hours here. And the only problem with that is um, I get car sick and nauseated. And so we'll see how this sermon goes this morning, all right? Um, let's pray. Let's pray for Pastor Ryan and his family for a moment And then we'll jump into this great text this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you first and foremost that you're our Father. That you love us. That you're keenly aware of every moment of our hearts. And that you're with us. You're with us in times of celebration. You're with us in times of devastation and uh, You're faithful and you're good and you're sovereign in both. And Father, like no other earthly father, you know how to comfort your children. And so this morning I would ask that uh, Ryan and Carrie and Candace and Adeline and and Lydia, Linda, Chris, and uh, that you as their heavenly father would comfort them in their time of grief. And God, may, they, may Ryan and Carrie know that they have a church family here in Orlando that deeply loves them and is going to embrace them and walk with them in the days and weeks and months ahead as they grieve the loss of their father. And um, Heavenly Father, we rejoice because on Thursday afternoon, Dale uh, entered into your presence in heaven And you said, well done, my good and faithful servant. Welcome home, son. And he is worshiping with an unveiled face. You in all of your glory. And one day, even though we grieve today, we don't grieve without hope because one day we'll be reunited reunited with Dale and worship you together with him for all of eternity. And it's in your name and for your glory we pray. Amen and amen. And so if you have your Bibles, I hope they're still up at Acts 17. We're continuing the series, Witness. Um, uh, the book of Acts is this powerful story that carries along us along in this great epic of how the early church 
was planted and how the gospel began to spread around the world. And so the book of Acts is this report of adventure filled with arrest, imprisonments, beating riots, narrow escapes, martyrdom, a resurrection from the dead, an exorcism, a shipwreck, a trial scene, a miraculous uh, rescue, and some pretty powerful sermons. And the end goal of this book is that we would love God more, be more captivated and enamored by the greatness and the glory of God and be swept along in this great redemptive mission that we as Christians are called to with God and with the church. Now, this morning we're in chapter 17. And if you recall in 16, 16 is a pretty fascinating chapter. It's Paul and Silas. We're in prison for preaching the gospel. This earthquake happens, they're released. They they, uh, share the gospel with all the prisoners and even the jailer. And uh, they begin preaching the the gospel. And uh, uh, a bunch of Jewish people got upset and began to riot against them. They fled in the night uh, um, from Berea. And Paul went to Athens, and now here in the halfway through Athens, Paul is waiting for Silas and Timothy um, to catch up with them. And it says, look at verse 16, it says, And while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was waiting for Paul and Silas, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. Now, let me just give you the context for Athens. Athens was this center of worship. People all over the known world would come to Athens to enjoy the hedonism, the pleasure of idol worship. Kind of sounds like Orlando, right? Thousands of people from all over the world come seeking pleasure, come seeking comfort. And Paul's heart, it says, the idols was full, the city was full of idols and he was provoked or, or one translation, the NIV translation said his spirit was distressed. Now it kind of reminds me back in Luke 18, verse 41, I believe, where Jesus was coming over the hill to the, overlooking the city of Jerusalem and his heart was broken and he began to weep over the city of Jerusalem. This is what Paul is doing. He is weeping over the city of Athens because it is full of idols. Oh, that our spirits would be provoked by the idols of our own hearts and the idols of our city. And yet so often our hearts, instead of our hearts being provoked by the idols of our culture, we pursue the idols of our culture. Instead of our hearts being distressed by the idols of our culture, we often worship the very same idols that our culture does. I think this is a great challenge that the church has. The world looks in on us and says, why should I convert to the Savior you worship on Sunday morning when I've already converted to all the other Saviors you worship the other six days of the week? And this is why the people look at all the church and say, why should I even bother? Now, verse 17 tells us that Paul, he reasoned with those in the synagogue in the marketplace. Now, I find it fascinating that Paul did engage these people, how Paul engaged these people in regards to their idols. He didn't confront them or condemn them. He reasoned with them. He dialogued with them about it. It's a fascinating way to engage the culture of the idols it worships. I mean, I'm just saying right now, a network news 
uh, stations do not teach us how to engage with culture. CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, MSNBC or whatever it's called. The, um, it, it doesn't teach us how to engage culture with the gospel. And yet Paul gives us an incredible model for this. He reasoned with them. Now look at verse 18. It says, some of the Epicureans and Stoic philosophers also conversed with them. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Other says he seemed to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he's preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Now, I know some of you here think preachers are babblers, all right? And to be honest, sometimes we can be babblers. But let me be succinct this morning. Let me reason with you this morning. I want to preach the depth and the beauty and the riches of the gospel this morning. I want to preach Christ and the resurrection. And so let me reason with you regarding your idols this morning, uh, much as Paul did with the Athenians. Um, I want to be succinct. And so here's what we're going to talk about this morning. Three things. Do we have that slide? Number one is this, why we love our idols. Number two, why idols can't love us back. And number three, why Jesus is the ultimate savior. All right. In a true sense, Paul is explaining to the Athenians why they love idols and why idols can't love them back. And so here's what they do. They brought Paul to the Areopagus, which isn't a clothing store, right? That's Aeropostle, all right? The Areopagus is the cultural center of Athens. This is where all the new philosophies, this is where all the new teachings were talked about. And look at verse 19. It says, um, they brought, let me find it here. Uh, so he was reasoned in synagogue with the Jews and devout persons in the marketplace. And every day with those who happened to be there, some of the Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers who conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seemed to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he's preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And then in 19, it says, and they took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus and saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. And now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. And so the, um, here's the first point. Uh, well, let me say this. A church like Crosspoint who values preaching through the word of God, inevitably you're going to come, keep coming back to this theme over and over again, this theme of idolatry, because idolatry isn't just one of among many lists of sins that we have to war against. It is the root of all sin. It it exposes the motivation of why we sin at all. And so so, uh, if you've heard messages on idols a lot, I think you've probably had at least two going through the book of Acts. Uh, This is why, because it's it's at the root of why we sin at all. And so um, here's the first point I want to to get to, to be succinct. Uh, uh, 
why we love our idols. Look at verse 22. It says, so Paul standing in the midst of the Areopagus said to the men, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. And so to answer the question, why we love idols is because they're awesome, right? Like, let's be honest with each other. I mean, we're in church this morning. I think church is a good place to be honest. The reason we love our idols is because we think they're awesome. Uh, the, 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 they, they, what they promised, they deliver up front. Like pornography, up front, it delivers what it promises. Uh, sex up front, it delivers what it promises. Money up front, it delivers what it promises. Status up front, it delivers what it promises. I mean, this is why Athens is so full of idols. This is why Orlando is so full of idols. This is why we are constantly in this battle against the temptation to kneel down to worship idols. Um, the reason we love idols is because we were created to worship. Now, regardless of what you believe about God or Jesus or the Bible, what you cannot deny is that we were made to worship. I mean, this is why, this is what Paul is exposing. Like, like, the reason all these idols are around is you were created to worship. In fact, there's an idol here that you don't even have a name for because you're fearing that maybe all these idols aren't the real God, but there is a real God out there. And so just to cover our bases, here he is. And this is why Paul, we're going to see this in a few minutes, he appeals to the philosophers and the poets of this day to expose them to this universal truth that every single one of us are hardwired to worship. Now, the, um, we worship either our creator or something created. We cannot eliminate God without creating a God substitute. And we see this everywhere in our culture. People everywhere are captivated by something. They're giving their life to something. Like some of you are sitting here going, no, I don't live my life for anything but myself. You're you're fooled. You're, You're deceived. Because we are created to worship, we are all worshiping something, and whatever it is we worship, we are serving, we are living our life for. Now let me explain it to you this way. Several years ago, I had this old Jeep Wrangler, and it was getting pretty old and breaking down, and so my wife began to say things like, honey, your Jeep is getting old, it's breaking down, we need to trade it in for a new car. And I'm like hearing her say this and I'm going like, you think I'm old and breaking down and you want to get a new model, right? It's like my identity, I think, was a little too tied to what I drive. Now, idols are good things that we make God things. They're good things that we make God things. Making something become ultimate in your life rather than God. It is anything that you think you must have or need to have and couldn't live without. 
You see, we love idols because they promise us four things that every human heart desires. And you can remember it, just pack. Power, approval, control, comfort. These are the root idols that drive all of our behavior, whether you realize it or not. The longing for power, a longing for influence or recognition. Approval is a longing to be accepted or desired. Control is a longing for everything to go according to plan. Comfort is this longing for pleasure. This is what drives us at a root level. For example, I know one of the root idols I struggle with is the idol of control. I always want things to be in control and uh, few things trample on this idol um, than when my wife is driving. And it's not that her driving is bad. She's a great, great driver. I'm just a control freak, right? And it's just like, man, when she's driving, I'm like, you know, trying to tell her how to drive. She's like, I got this, Right? In fact, this morning, she's driving here so I can write my sermon on idolatry and her driving is trampling trampling on my idol of control. And I'm like, just confess it, just confess it, all right? Don't let it drive you. Don't let it, you know, control you. But yet, all the time, the default idol, uh, the default mode of our heart is idol worship. And we often attach these root idols to surface idols. And surface idols, so there's root idols and then there's surface idols and surface idols are ordinarily good thing that we attach our need for power and approval and control and comfort to. Surface idols are ordinarily good things like a spouse or a child or a job or a savings account or money. And yet we attach these root idols to them, making ordinarily good things God things. Now, the intensity of the desire is what makes it evil. Or as John Calvin, the great reformer stated, the evil in our desire typically does not lie in what we want, but that we want it too much. And so we are hard, the reason we love idols is because we're hardwired to worship. Now here's point number two. Idols can't love you back. The reason we love idols is we believe that they will love us back. But here's the problem with that. Even though up front they can deliver what they promise, in the end they require us to sacrifice everything. The the, the pursuit of idols always end in the soul-wearing quest. The great Uh, writer Dante wrote about this in his classic work Inferno in one of the outer circles of hell people are chasing back and forth after a banner that they could never reach it and though they could never reach it they never stopped chasing it either Dante writes this I saw a banner there upon the mist circling and circling it seemed to scorn all pauses so it ran on and still behind it pressed a never-ending route of souls 
in pain. That's a description of hell. That's a description of the pursuit of idols. I call this the cul-de-sac of insanity. I see uh, men and women all the time spend their whole lives running around the cul-de-sac in insanity, chasing that banner, seeking their identity, their value, and their worth, and created things rather than their creator. And it is the soul-weary pursuit, and they think just one more time around. And I'll get what my soul so longs for. And yet it never happens. And they keep going around this cul-de-sac of insanity. All the while sacrificing marriages. Sacrificing children. Sacrificing health. Sacrificing their relationship with God. In pursuit of this banner. Of this identity. Of this value. Of this worth that they are looking for in the created. Rather than in the creator. And it's hell. And it's hell. Dante understood something important about the human nature. People need a standard, something to look to for their identity and security. And many people spend their whole lives chasing after it without ever reaching a place of rest. And Dante calls that hell. In Psalms 135, 15 through 18 tells us this. I think it's up here. The idols of a nation are silver and gold and the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them and so do all who trust in them. Now, the psalmist is politely putting it this way. He says, idols are inanimate objects. They can't give you the life you long for. They can't give you the satisfaction you long for because they're dead. And if you pursue after them, you will end in death. It will be death to you, death to your family, death to your children, and your relationship with your children, death to your health. And the prophet Jeremiah writes in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 12, he says, Be appalled. Let your heart break because of this. Let your spirit be provoked with you because of this, O heavens. At this be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. What is it that the heavens should be shocked about, should be appalled about? He says this, verse 13, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me the fount of living waters and hewed out for them cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Here's what the prophet Jeremiah is crying out to us. Like two things that shock heaven is that we would ever abandon God, the fount of living water, the place in which our souls, our weary, dry souls, will find satisfaction, will find salvation. And we abandon him for these created things, these broken cisterns, and we pursue after them, thinking they're going to satisfy our souls, but they can't, they won't, they're broken, they're dead, and even the pursuit of them is how which leads to death. Now, I love what Paul does here. Instead of condemning them for their idols, he paints for them a picture of a God they ultimately long for. Look with me at verse 24 again. 
It says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. He's far greater than that. He's far glorious than anything that human temples could contain. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind and uh, Mankind, life and breath and everything. Like there's nothing that our creator cannot give us. He alone is the one who satisfies our soul. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. And having determined the allotted periods of the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and hope that they may feel their way towards him and find him. And yet he's actually not far from each one of us. And then Paul quotes the Athenians' own philosophers and poets. He says, in him we live and move and have our being. It's in him we find satisfaction, in him alone. And even some of your own poets have said, for indeed we are his offspring. Now, being the God, then God's offspring We ought not to think that divine beings like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art of the imagination of man. Like, like if this is true, like what what you know deep inside you intuitively, what your own prophets and or poets and philosophers are telling you, that there is a God far above all these other false God, and we are his children. He created us and he sustains us. Why would you ever worship? Why would you ever give your life for something less? He gives them in these beautiful words a God that is great, that is glorious. He presents God in all of his irresistible glory. And he says that this is the God who you really long for. This and this unnamed idol is pointing you to a greater one. He is our creator, our sustainer. He's the only one who can satisfy our souls. He calls them to be captivated by the one who is only worthy of their devotion. And then look, he calls them to repentance. Of all false savior, look at verse 30. He goes, that's the times of ignorance. God is overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, Paul's calling us to repentance, but he's showing us how we are to repent. He's showing us that the only way we can repent of our idols is seeing God as far greater and far more glorious than any of these false saviors that we worship. Thomas Chalmers, a Puritan pastor, said it best. He said, the best way to overcome the world is not with morality or self-discipline. Christians overcome the world by seeing the beauty and the excellence of Christ. They overcome the world by seeing something more attractive than anything the world can offer, and that's Christ. 
And so I repent of my idolatry, not by looking at myself in the mirror and telling myself I can displace it with my own energy or might or goodness. I repent of my lesser gods by remembering how great and how glorious God really is and let him captivate my heart instead of being captivated or enslaved to lesser things. We can repent of our longing for power by submitting to his greater power that's within us. We can repent of our longing for approval by rejoicing in his gracious approval. We can repent of our longing for control by surrendering to his ultimate control, knowing that he created everything and all the nations and he's put the boundaries on the nations and he even has given us an allotted time in which we are to live because he is sovereign, he is in control. We can repent of our longing for comfort by remembering he is the greater comfort. There is no greater comfort than Christ. His power is greater, his control is perfect, his comfort is satisfying, and his approval is eternal. There is no God like our God. Now, here's the last point. Why Jesus is the ultimate Savior. Look at what Paul does in verse 31. He says, and this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, Jesus is the ultimate savior because he's not dead like all the other false saviors. He can love you like no other false idol, false savior can because he is risen. He is alive. All other idols are dead. They can never deliver ultimately what they promise. Only Jesus can. And his resurrection guarantees that God is great and glorious as Paul has argued. Now, I remember when we first moved to Orlando, we'd become friends with a couple in our neighborhood who were outside the church, outside the faith. And um, I'll never forget, my wife had run out and ran into them at the Publix near where we lived. And she's like, Jen, you wouldn't believe what happened today. And I was like, what happened? She goes, man, our friends invited us to Rachel's strip club uh, for a couple's night, you know? And I'm like, we're all about a missional lifestyle, but there's a limit, all right? It's a missional lifestyle with a seatbelt, okay? And so obviously we didn't accept that, but uh, we continued to develop a friendship with them. And I remember running in uh, to, I'll call him Kevin, uh, in the public scenario story. He goes, hey, I need to talk to you. I'm like, hey, yeah, what do you need? He goes, no, no, I really need to talk to you. And I said, well, let's just meet at Starbucks in the morning and let's talk. And so I sat down with Kevin and... Um, and before I even had a first sip of my drink, he goes, I'm thinking about having an affair on my wife. And like everything inside me wanted to take the Bible and like thump him on the head and like, do you not know the Ten Commandments? And then I thought, I had a reason with him. Instead of condemning him, I had a reason with him. I said, okay, let's go there. Let's go there, Kevin. Let, 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 let's see how that plays out. And I go, why is it that you want to have an affair? And he goes, well, there's this woman at work who just, man, makes me feel so good. It just gives me the approval I long for. I'm like, I get it. I understand that, that, that man's easy one, you know? That, that's easy to go for that. 
let me ask you this. Did your wife ever give you the approval you long for? And he goes, yeah, I mean, that's why we started dating. That's why we got married. And I'm like, okay, so how long did that approval last? He just like shrugs, I don't know, maybe a year or two. And I go, I understand that. I get that. And so this lady at work is going to give you the approval that your wife couldn't give you. And he goes, yeah, I'm hoping. And I'm like, do you think that will, she'll give it to you for two years, three years, four years? And he's like, I don't, I don't know. I'm like, well, let's, let's, just, let's just work out the math here. You're about ready to sacrifice a marriage of 10 years. You're about ready to sacrifice your children who are gonna be bitter and angry at you for betraying their mom and abandoning them. You're about ready potentially to sacrifice your job because you're her superior. For what? A couple of years, three years of approval? And he goes, well, I never thought of it that way. And I'm like, here's what you're gonna do. You are giving yourself to, what the, to something the Bible calls an idol. And up front, it may deliver what it promises. But in the end, you are going to sacrifice everything. It leads in death. And I said, Kevin, can I just share with you a true savior that upfront sacrificed everything for you so that you could have life and life to its fullest, that you could have everything your heart longs for, that you could have all the approval for eternity in him. Now, here's the thing about idols. It grieves the heart of the one who gave himself for you. You see, the gospel isn't just a condemnation of idolatry as much as it is a freedom from idolatry. And so let me ask you, what are you giving your life to? What are you sacrificing everything for? Will it give you what your heart longs for? Look how the story ends in Acts 17. It's pretty crazy, verse 32. It says, now when they heard of the resurrection of dead, some mocked, <laughs> some just made fun of Paul. But others, but others said, we will hear you again about this. They were intrigued. Paul had them. And then look, keep going. It says, so Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. Among him also were Dionysius and the Aparagite, and a woman named Amaris and others with them. Now, here's what I want you to see this morning before we get out of here. The gospel always changes the human heart. It will either soften or harden your heart, but it will not leave your heart unchanged. You see, Jesus won't allow you to make him one savior among others. He alone is resurrected from the dead. All other idols are dead and lead to death, as the psalmist told us. You see, some of you may be here in church this morning because one of the idols that you have looked to for power, approval, control, or comfort has been threatened. 
And you're running to Jesus to say, hey, Jesus, rescue my idol. That would be like me coming to my wife and asking her to bail out a woman that I've been having an affair with, right? (laughs) That would never happen. A homicide would happen, right? Like Jesus, because of who he is, is worthy of our full devotion because he is a resurrected savior. And so there's no greater savior than Jesus. He will not be mocked. He is great and glorious. He is worthy of your life, your all. And so how will you respond to the gospel? How will you respond to the gospel? Throughout scripture, there is this phrase repeated over and over again that says they worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They worshiped the God of their fathers. Here's what I want you to see. Our children will worship the Savior, not the Savior we worship just on Sunday mornings. They will worship the Saviors we worship the other six days of the week. And so let me ask you, what Savior will your children worship? Last Thursday, or this past Thursday, I was in my office. I had just come back from Philadelphia and Wilmington, Delaware, and I had a few moments, a morning in the office to get a whole lot done and to get a Hebrew, uh, I mean, a Greek three assignment that I'm taking Greek and Hebrew at the same time, and so I'm a little overwhelmed. And I was trying to get this Greek uh, assignment in, and um, I was getting interrupted over and over again. Uh, my people in the office and I was getting frustrated because my idol of control was being threatened and um, and I was hoping to get out to Miami where we were to spend the next few days, couple of days and um, get down there early be able to relax with my wife, rest with my wife before the conference started and nothing was going my way, nothing and I was so frustrated, I was so irritated and, um, I was even upset at God. I was like, I just want to retreat with my wife. I want to get, I want to get out of town with my wife. I've hardly seen her all week. And yet I kept getting delayed and getting delayed and getting delayed about two o'clock in the afternoon. Um, I finally got done. I said, I'm out of here. And about the time I got done, I got a text from my wife saying, hey, Carrie just texted me and they're pulling Dale off life support. I was thinking, wow, if I had gotten out early in the morning like I had planned, I'd already been in Miami. But God knew what he was doing. He was delaying me for this moment. And so I jumped in my car and just went a couple of miles to the hospital where Dale was at and walked into the IC room where Dale was hooked up with all of his life support. And um, the measure of a man's character the depth of his belief in the gospel is not seen in the brightest of days. It's seen in the darkest of days. And I had this rare gift, this rare opportunity to see that in Ryan, to see that in your pastor. And so I stood in that room with Ryan and his mom as they unplugged Dale from life support. And the whole time, Ryan was praying over his dad and reading scripture over his dad and singing over his dad. I was thinking, that's my job. Like, I'm here to be pastor, and yet Ryan was doing all of that. You all know why? In the darkest of moments, Pastor Ryan saw that God is far greater and far more glorious 
than anything on this earth. You'll know why he was able to see that. Because Dale, though not perfect, we talked about this around his bed, was not a perfect man by far, but he was a repentant man. He saw how, he saw the beauty and the depth and the riches of the gospel, all of who God is revealed to us in the face of Christ. And because Dale worshiped Jesus, his son Ryan worshiped Jesus. Because Jesus is far greater than anything on this earth could give us. Ah, do we believe that? Will you stand with me? Jesus, forgive us when our hearts are lured away by lesser things, things that pale in comparison to your grace, to your greatness, to your glory. Ah, Holy Spirit, this morning through the teaching of your word, may our hearts be once again captivated by the beauty and the depth and the riches of the gospel. Ah, may our affections, may our time, may our devotion be for you and for you alone, for you 